0: Welcome to the 5 Books for Catholics podcast, where experts explain their pick of 5 outstanding books on an aspect of Catholic life, doctrine or culture. Apologetics consists in defending the faith by explaining the reasons for belief in Revelation. It is summed up in St. Peter's exhortation to Always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. The first letter of St. Peter, chapter 3, verse 15. However, recently, several apologists have been stressing the need to engage not just our mind, but also our imagination. This strand of apologetics has been called imaginative apologetics. In this episode, Holly Ordway explains imaginative apologetics and recommends some of the best books in the subject. Holly Ordway is the Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word and Fire Institute and visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst and is the author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. Her other books include Tales of Faith, A Guide to Sharing the Gospel Through Literature, and Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, An Integrated Approach to Defending the Faith. She is also a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies and a published poet. Holly, welcome.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you. First of all, what is imaginative apologetics as opposed to conventional apologetics?
1: Well, that's a great question to start with, because in a sense, um, our idea of conventional apologetics has, has become unhelpfully narrow in the last, say, 50 or 100 years. So we do tend to think of apologetics as being only intellectual arguments. But imaginative apologetics is picking up on a on a thread, a strand of the defense of the faith that is actually very old um, and has only recently been kind of left in the dust, which is the use of the imagination and the aesthetic sense to help to make those arguments. Um, and this the premise behind the imaginative approach. Is that we are not just you know floating intellects we are incarnate beings and so we have an appreciation of you know emotion of of aesthetics of you know of of the physical world if we ignore those things when we're presenting the truth of the faith we're only giving kind of one angle of it and it's only touching one aspect of our being and it isn't it's going to resonate with some people but not with everyone and it won't have the full impact that a more integrated approach will take because god is truth god is goodness but god is also perfect beauty and each of these leads to the others so the whole idea of apologetics is basically to reclaim the imagination as a human faculty and to use that as we as we present the faith
0: If apologetics must appeal to the imagination, not just reason, is this not just an inherent characteristic of the word of God and so sort of evangelization more broadly? Scripture is full of stories. Jesus appeals to our imagination when he teaches us with these parables and analogies.
1: Well, exactly. And uh, that's, that's one of the biggest arguments for picking up the imagination in our apologetics work because we see that our Lord himself is effectively using an imaginative approach but that has often been dropped. Um so we have the parables in scripture, but then when we try to talk about who God is, we go straight to the philosophical arguments and forget that God's own self-revelation is giving us stories to tell us who he is. So that's that's a big part of it that we need to reclaim these you know really profoundly important modes of engagement that our Lord himself has demonstrated are so vital to being able to present the truth. Because, I mean, I'll take, for example, um, the idea of God's love and forgiveness. And this is such an important concept to be able to convey to people, because, you know, who is who is God? Is he just his abstract idea? No, God is the loving Father who wants us to come home to him. Well, how do we, how do we convey that? Well, certainly we can say, God loves you, God wants to forgive you, etc., Okay, but that's very abstract, and especially if somebody maybe doesn't have a good relationship with their father, has never experienced, you know, uh, um, forgiveness, um, is baby-bearing wounds, uh, maybe has never experienced unconditional love. Those words are just, they're abstract, they're cold, they're empty, they don't do a whole lot. Yeah, whatever, move on with your life. But if we tell a story, like we see that our Lord tells the parable of the prodigal son— and the parable of the prodigal son is a is sort of a miniature masterpiece of imaginative apologetics, because we have this son, um, he, he rebels, he, he, you know, he runs off and and he wants to do his own thing. Very relatable. Um, and he ends up, you know, no money, no nothing. And the details are so vivid. He's looking at the pigs eating their pig food and he and he thinks, ah, I wish I wish I had some of that. I mean, it's it's not just a statement. He was destitute. It's a vivid image that we can relate to. Then we see the internal dialogue where he says, oh, well, at least I can come back and, and be part of the, the, the staff. I can be a hired laborer. Um, again, very relatable. He's taking these steps. He, he isn't expecting forgiveness. He's just thinking, OK, I need to put my pride aside and, and you know get something. And then he, he goes home and we see this beautiful image of the father seeing him from far off running to meet him, leaving his dignity behind. You know, he's the father of the family. He's all dignified. He runs out to meet the prodigal son, embraces him, brings him in, gives him a party. And we have the very realistic figure of the elder son saying, oh, yeah, what about me? Again, that very realistic family dynamic there. So what we have then is something that imaginatively shows, embodies what. Repentance looks like and what the acceptance of that looks like what forgiveness looks like and it presents it in a way that is uh, Appealing, you know that this the son He's rehearsing his speech and he never even gets a chance to say it because the father embraces him now after somebody has fully engaged with that Then the statement god is like that god is like the father and the prodigal son god loves you and wants you to come home now, those words are going to have real meaning, um, as opposed to just being abstract. And in my own work as an imaginative apolo- apologist, this conveying of meaning is really at the heart of, of what I'm doing. Because my contention is that a lot of our apologetics and evangelism just falls flat because the words that we're using don't have any meaning for people. You know, what does forgiveness mean? What does, what does the word God mean? What does the word sin mean? any of that. It's just abstract Christian talk. So we need to reclaim meaning for these words. How do we do that? We don't do that by giving dictionary definitions. We do that by telling stories and showing art and appealing to the imagination. And that lays the foundation that we can then have a more intellectual discussion about these concepts.
0: And was there any particular experience that ignited your own interest in imaginative apologetics?
1: Well, really, what brought it about is that that is how I came to the faith, because I'm a convert. Um, I'm an adult convert. I was an atheist, and I became a Christian in my early 30s. And what brought me to the point of wanting to know about, you know, is this true, was not philosophy or apologetics or theology or any of that. It was stories. Um, It was the work of C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I had written my dissertation on fantasy literature, centered it on on Tolkien. Um, the work of poets like Gerard Manley Hopkins. All these writers whose work I loved turned out to be Christians, um, and the vision they were putting forward was so appealing that I found myself wanting to know what they believed because the imaginative worlds they presented were so compelling. And now I, I wasn't looking to become a Christian at all. I, I was in fact, you know, very much against it. <laughs> um, but when I, I was drawn to it by the imagination, and then as I looked into it, realized, wow, they believe these things because they're actually quite convincing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they believe these things because it's true. Oh no. <laughs> and then I became a Christian. Um, and then a few years later, again, by a similar, similar process, um, became a Catholic. Uh, And by the way, this I write about this at greater length. Um, I have a memoir called Not God's Type, um, which I write about this at at some length. But that's that's the short version. So having had that own journey for myself, where the imagination got me to the point where the questions were meaningful. Then I asked the questions, but I would never have asked the questions before I had that imaginative engagement. And so then as a Christian, as a Catholic, um, I thought, well, You know, if this is the case for me, surely it is the case for others and have then you know devoted my energies into helping helping to develop this approach to apologetics.
0: You're a scholar of English literature and you're picking books on imaginative apologetics for an Anglophone audience. In your extended list, you mention Dante's Divine Comedy. Are there modern instances of imaginative apologetics in other languages just now
1: oh um that's that's a that's a good question um and a difficult one because i am a scholar of english literature so dante's divine comedy is so so big that it it cannot be missed even you know in english translation um but i i wouldn't be able to off the top of my head recommend non english language works um with the slight exception as i think about this that um the arthurian legends um often have a, have a deeply christian base um and there's a massive french tradition of arthurian literature so that is one area in which that mythopoeic christian um ethos is probably being expressed um although i wouldn't be able to name you know any modern titles um those lines
0: and uh, the first book you've picked is J.R.R. Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. In this essay, Tolkien identifies the marks of fairy tales, Märchen in German. That concludes that Christianity and the gospel constitute the supreme fairy tale. Why does this essay top your list?
1: Well, um, it topped my list partly because Tolkien himself is, I think, a profound Exemplar of doing imaginative apologetics because *The Lord of the Rings* is a deeply Christian book. I mean, he himself describes it as a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, but it is not overtly so; it's subtly so, um, and that is its own whole discussion. I've just written a book about that, um, so we won't go in that direction. But he—he he is actually doing this. He's presenting this beautiful um, vision. Because everything he's writing comes out of his Christian vision um, and it's it's beautiful, Um, it's compelling. And so then I think it makes sense to ask, okay, well, if he's doing this, let's look at his own self understanding of what he's doing. And I think that on fairy stories is really ought to be required reading for everybody who's interested in imagined apologetics, um, because he's really thinking through one genre fantasy he's not making claims for literature broadly speaking but the genre that he's working in is fantasy literature so he sets out to explore how does this how does this work why does it matter and he comes up with three characteristics of effective fantasy literature that um i think are applicable much more broadly and they are recovery um escape and consolation recovery um means that as we enter into a fairy story world we get sort of fresh view of things um, because they're they're magical they're different then we come back into what he calls the primary world our everyday world we're able to see that world fresh again Um, we recover a kind of clarity of vision so to give an example lord of the rings has the ents the great the tree shepherds who are just these amazing figures you come back out of the lord of the rings and you look at a regular tree and you think, wow, that's that's kind of cool. You see the tree as something more than just that thing with leaves outside my window. And if that holds true for something like a tree, how much more so does it hold true for an appreciation, say, of, of human beings um, and our relationships and of good and of evil and of, of moral choices? So that's the function of recovery that fantasy can do particularly well. Um, escape. He talks about the desire to escape from our limitations. and he it's not the same thing as escapism because that's like trying to hide from our problems. But true escape is recognizing when we're in a prison, we want to get out of it. And I think it's important to recognize that Tolkien, you know he was a veteran of the First world War. So when he's thinking about escaping from, say, a prison camp, You know, when he was in the front lines, that was a real possibility. He could have been, you know, he could have been in a prison camp and then had to think about what do I what do I do? So we want to be able to think about, you know, what are the limitations that we want to escape from? And Tolkien points out that one of the profound limitations of our of our lives is is death. We want to escape from death. And that's a, a true longing. And then consolation. He talks about the consolation of the happy ending. And he invents a word eucatastrophe, um, catastrophe, the good catastrophe to convey this. And this is where he makes the direct connection to the gospels, because he says, as you as you quoted, um, that the gospels are a kind of fairy tale, um, but they're a fairy tale that happened in history. Um, it's the' it's the true myth. it's the, it's the fairy tale that actually happened. And he says that in this story, um, the resurrection, is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation um, and that when we have this lifting of the heart at a happy ending it's actually in some way an echo of the true happy ending of of the universe which is the resurrection so he, he links that that delight in a happy ending with the resurrection of christ and but not in an overt way it has to do with the very structure of the way we tell a story and I think that understanding of the deeper functions of a story, because recovery, consolation, and escape can function in any genre. And in fact, they can function in other forms of art as well. Old literature is my thing. Um, so I think this gives us, in a way, a conceptual framework to be thinking about how do we present, you know, the truths of revelation and in ways that will connect with people.
0: I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that... Uh, Tolkien's reflections on Christianity as a true fairy tale, and as a source of joy was fundamental in the conversion of C.S. Lewis, and he alludes to it in Surprised by Joy. And that brings us into your, Nick's book, um, Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Um, not only are we staying with one of Tolkien's fellow Inklings, Lewis, but we consider whether Lewis is the chronicles of Narnia. Is a seven volume imaginative story or fairy tale about Christ. Could you explain a bit more of the thesis of um Michael Ward's Planet Narnia?
1: Right. Yeah, this is this is a fantastic book. Again, a must read for anybody who's interested in Lewis, interested in imaginative apologetics. Because Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the seven the seven volumes of that story, beginning with Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, are some of the best known sort of imaginative apologetic stories um they're more um they're more overt than tolkien's writings um so for instance it's relatively easy to recognize that aslan is christ in the world of narnia i mean in the the line which the wardrobe we have him dying and you know being resurrected this is relatively clear um but it's not an allegory that's important. Um, there's not a one-to-one correspondence. Um, it's a supposal, Lewis said. You know, suppose Christ was present in another world. Um, and that week we get Aslan. <clears throat> and these stories really convey just a lot about what it is to be, what it is to be a Christian. Because um, Lewis himself said the Narnia Chronicles were all about Christ. But it has not been necessarily entirely clear what he meant by that. And what uh, Michael Ward has done um, was that he realized that Lewis had an imaginative substructure to the whole Chronicles of Narnia, which was based on the medieval seven heavens. So each each story, um, starting with Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, which originally was going to be just one. So Lewis focused it around the planet Jupiter, which in medieval imagery is the kingly planet but when associated with joy, with joviality, and he explores in the imagery, in the structure of the story, Christ as the king, as the bringer of joy. Um, And he he then, having realized that this worked um, and that it was really resonant and successful, Lewis then goes on in each of the other Narnia Chronicles to explore Christ under a different way. So in the voyage of the don treader um it's the solar imagery christ as the sun the son of righteousness in um, prince caspian it's the imagery of mars so christ as the, as the you know the the warrior um, so we we see this through all of the seven chronicles and it's buried deeply but once you see it um you recognize and, and michael ward does a fantastic job of showing this is the case Lewis has just done this in every detail of the Narnia Chronicles, and it comes out of his own deep medieval knowledge because Tolkien, I mean, Lewis was a medievalist. And he wrote a, a poem called The Planets, which basically gives the key, each identifies each of the, uh, the planets and their symbolism, and it maps right on to the Chronicles of Narnia. So, this is a, so Planet Narnia is a marvelous book if you want to understand what Lewis was up to. It actually revolutionized Lewis Studies' um, fantastic book it's also a really effective case study in imaginative apologetics because it's showing how did lewis do this how did he translate these concepts okay i want to convey christ as you know as king i want to convey christ as son i want to convey christ you know in, in all these different ways how do i do that and he does it imaginatively through imagery through language through story um just woven in really, really deeply, uh, and I think that, I mean, as I said, is a great case study. Like this, this is a way that you can do it. This is how Lewis did it. This is why the Chronicles of Narnia are so powerful. It's not just about popping in a Christ figure into a otherwise, you know, ordinary story. If that were the case, Narnia would be forgotten, like so many other, you know, books of the of the 1950s. Why has it lasted? because there's a real coherence to it.
0: Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview or to support this podcast, visit the website fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on the platform of your choice so that more people can discover it and give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, God bless.